invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 103, 103. Psalm 103, and we'll read the entire psalm. But our text especially this morning is verse 12, verse 12. Psalm 103, reading the entire psalm. Listen, this is God's Word. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, I once had a magic trick that I used to perform. And I say once, and I used to. I don't do it anymore. But the magic trick involved sweeping our kitchen floor without using a dustpan. And the trick was to assemble the little pile of crumbs and dust bunnies over on the one side and with a little flick of the wrist make it disappear under the stove. <laughs> now I know that makes me a terrible person. And I know that because the last time I performed that trick, Diana saw me. <laughs> and she told me, someday we're gonna need a new stove. Or we're going to move out and the next person who lives in our house is going to need a new stove. And let's just say your sins will find you out. <laughs> Subsequently, Diana went out and bought a broom with a dustpan that clips onto the bottom of the handle. I have no other excuse. 
So now the pile goes into the dustpan. The dustpan gets dumped into the kitchen little trash can, and that bag gets wrapped up and brought out to the garage, and that gets brought to the road every Tuesday or Friday, and it gets dumped into a truck and goes for a ride to the landfill, and the dust bunnies and the crumbs are never seen from or heard from ever again. Well, if you're just joining us today, we are exploring Bible passages where God describes what he does to our sin. Sin is described in the Bible in a variety of ways. Simply put, it is what we do and sometimes do not do, but it's a lack of conformity to or transgression of any law of God. It's a catechism answer for you if you've ever heard one, but sin is our rebellion, acts against God, is violating God's law as he tells us what we are to do, what we are not to do. And perhaps the most common image associated with sin is of the legal one, that is, it makes us guilty. Our sin makes us guilty before a holy, just God who gave us those laws. So forgiveness of sins in that picture has to do with the punishment of God falling on his son, punishment that was due to us for our guilt, for our being found guilty. And forgiveness has something to do with those sins being transferred to Christ and the righteousness of Christ falling on us so that we are not only not guilty, but we're actively, positively righteous in God's sight because we're in Christ. Forgiveness of sins is a gift of God. And it comes only in our union with Christ, the one who has earned that forgiveness, who has paid the penalty, whose righteousness becomes ours. Forgiveness is a gift of God to us, worked in us by the Holy Spirit of God. When we rest in, when we trust in, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, as we repent of our sin. Both faith and repentance are themselves gifts of God's grace, worked in us by the Spirit, by which we lay hold of Christ and receive the forgiveness of God. But along with sin bringing guilt, Sin is also described in scriptures in a variety of other ways. Sometimes it's an object or an obstacle that gets between us and God. And make no mistake about it, it's our obstacle. We put it there. And forgiveness sometimes involves God removing that obstacle. So we noticed last or a couple of weeks ago that sin is sometimes described as a heavy weight or a burden, and God throws it into the depths of the sea. It sinks to the bottom. Last week we saw sin as, as pollution or corruption or uh, dirt or filth, and God removes it by cleansing or washing or purifying us. This morning, I want you to see God's forgiveness through the lens of Psalm 103, especially verse 12. Hear it again. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Transgressions, another word for sin. 
And I want us to hear this verse in the context of the entire psalm answering these three questions. Well, what does God do with our sin? And secondly, why does God give us this picture of what he does with our sin? And then thirdly and finally, how do we respond? How do we respond to this? So the first question is, what does God do with your sin? And the psalmist, again, depicts our acts of sin in violation of God's law as a collection or a package of objects that stand between us and God. Again, they are our sins. They are our doing. They stand between us and full fellowship with a God who made us, a God who is utterly holy. But this package defiles us by its association with us, by its presence within us even, and by its presence among us. And so very simply, but rather vividly, the psalmist describes God as sweeping up or gathering together or binding up, bundling our sin and removing it from our presence. God distances that package from us, taking it as far away from us as we could possibly imagine. Somewhere, I suppose, in the second grade, we learned that the earth is round. And maybe by the fifth or sixth grade, or maybe in our 50s or 60s, we learned the distance from the North Pole to the South Pole is something like 12,700 miles. I hope I got that right. But even to the ancient Near Eastern Jew, the first persons to receive Psalm 103, who didn't have globes in their classrooms or satellites or GPS or who thought the sun rose in the east and set in the west and those are two fixed points on the horizon, even to them, if you travel east and you keep going east, you will always be going east. In fact, as you travel east, the west keeps getting further away. If you turned around and began traveling west again, and if you kept going west, you'd always be going west, and the east is always behind you and always getting further from you. East never turns into west, and west never turns into east. So Rudyard Kipling was right when he began his poem, O East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. Here's the point of Psalm 103, when we confess our sin to God, when we repent of it, when we lay hold of Christ by faith, this is what God does with our sin. He removes our sin from us by such an infinite distance to such an inaccessible place they can no longer be associated with us or we with them. They are irretrievably and irrecoverably removed from us to the point where God can look at us and we even can look at ourselves and say, what's it? It's gone. 
When our hearts and our souls are searched by the best technology of the greatest forensic crime lab, there's no evidence, not a trace. And I confess, this is hard to believe. You want to believe this, but it's hard to believe it. Because Satan is always trying to reach out and drag them back, or sometimes someone you know and love is trying to remind you of all the things you've done, and sometimes your own weak consciences do that for you. Or you look at yourself in what you do today, and you imagine it's just like all those other ones, and you have a hard time believing that God actually takes your sin, bundles it up, and removes it from you as far as the east is from the west. That is, it's gone. God does not sweep our sins under the carpet or under the stove to be discovered or rediscovered, maybe years later, maybe by someone else years later. God doesn't keep your sins in a jar on his shelf or in the junk drawer in his dresser or in the safety deposit box at the bank. He doesn't keep a physical or even as we're going to see another time, a, a mental list of your sin so they can dredge it up again and throw it in your face and remind you of what a terrible person you are and what terrible things you've done. Even as you go to confess your sin, he's not the kind of God who says, oh, here she comes again. Again? Same sin? He takes your sin and it's gone. I suspect the Old Testament Jew read Psalm 103 with the Day of Atonement in mind. That day when the priest, you might remember, would lay his hands on a goat, confessing over it the sins of the people, symbolically transferring, bundling up the sins of God's people, placing them on the goat, and then driving that goat out into the wilderness, which might as well be as far as east is from west. It's not until we get to the New Testament that this picture becomes even clearer for us. We hear the words of John the Baptist as he's standing, seeing Jesus approaching him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews, clearly with Day of Atonement in mind and thinking about all the inadequacies and limitations of those Old Testament sacrifices, says this, It is impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. But Jesus died once to take away the sins of many people. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. In him is no sin. And then think of it as Jesus is in the garden just before he goes to the cross. And he prays. And what does he pray? Father, remove this cup from me. 
That cup was the cup of God's wrath for our sins, and it was the Father's will that the cup of His wrath and the sin that generated that wrath be taken by His Son, not removed from Him. Taken by His Son, drunk to the bottom. And Jesus went on to say, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Thanks be to God. So the Father makes him liable to receive the judgment for sin because he relocates our sin in and on Jesus. Jesus is banished outside the city walls and in some sense banished even from the presence of God while he's on the cross, bearing our sins because our sins are in that moment being taken away, removed never to be brought back as far as east is from west. Well, why does God give us this picture? Why does God do this with our sin? If you remember our reading through Psalm 103, you see there are two kinds of descriptions of God, two kinds of words and phrases associated with God. One set describes God's actions. The other describes his character. And you notice God does as God is. So notice what he does. He, he distributes and dispenses blessings and benefits. He forgives all our iniquities. He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit and then crowns us with love and compassion. He knows our deepest needs our greatest desires and he fills those needs he satisfies those desires with good things he even renews our youth and gives us strength he works righteousness and justice for the oppressed he delivers us he does not deal with us or treat us as our sins deserve he doesn't keep a list he doesn't repay us according to what we have earned. Those are just some of the things he does in the psalm. Notice as well there are verses that describe his character. Again, God does what he does because he is who he is. And this psalm amplifies these things. He is compassionate. He is gracious. Though he has many reasons to be otherwise, he is slow to anger abounding in love. Even though he does see great sin and fault in us, he's not a perpetual accuser. He doesn't harbor his anger forever. He's compassionate like a father toward his children. He's deeply aware of our weaknesses and of our limitations. And through this and above all this, he's a God of great love. Verse 11, immediately adjacent to our text, in other words, so closely related to this act of removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the, rest, the west, verse 11 highlights his great love. You think east and west are far. How about earth and heaven? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great 
is his love for those who fear him. Ask any little child, how big are they? And they do this, don't they? How great is God's love, so great, as high as the heavens are from the earth. God's infinite love for us, this overriding disposition toward us, is what motivates him to remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Or to put this into New Testament terms, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world was sent into the world by the same God of Psalm 103. The God of Psalm 103 is the God who so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world to take on the sins of the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So if God, out of his infinite love, has removed your sins an infinite distance away from you through his son, how do you respond to that? Well, Psalm 103 answers that question too. It's primarily a response of praise and thanksgiving. A response of joy and delight in God for who he is and for what he has done. It's a response of praise and thanksgiving that is described in all kinds of ways, but at least this, it is intensive. It requires this thoroughgoing response from us that comes from the very depths of our being, worked in us by the Holy Spirit who gets into the deepest parts of our heart. And as we embrace and understand and and reach out for and then enjoy the forgiveness of God that involves this removal of our sin, we praise Him from deep, deep within our bones. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Bless His holy name. So it's intensive, it comes from within, and it permeates our response to God. It's also extensive in that it involves all of creation. Uh, It doesn't come just from us, but notice the angels, the mighty ones who do his bidding, the heavenly host, as the psalm wraps up. Every created thing under his dominion, everywhere, all things are to praise him. Why? Because they are members of an audience, they are witnesses to his great redemptive acts that have import and meaning, not just for us, but for the whole world. His grace extends to the very reaches of creation, and therefore so too should his praise. So it's intensive, it's extensive, and it's praise that's prompted by and shaped by what God has done because of who God is. In other words, our praise mirrors in so many ways the the emphasis of the psalm. The psalmist demands of us that we're never to forget his benefits. We're forgetful people. We can't remember people's names. We don't remember what we had for dinner last week. We don't always remember what God has done for us. Part of what we do every Sunday is to be reminded that we might not forget. 
And we know that we do not receive any of these benefits apart from Christ. Or to put it maybe more positively, when we get Christ, we get all his benefits. And we're to have hardwired into our memories the Father's mercy and his compassion and his love as they come to their fullest expression in the sending of His Son as they are received by the Holy Spirit. And we're to let that inform and shape our response to motivate us and to define our praise. It's intensive from within us. It's extensive to all of creation. It is shaped and prompted by who God is and what he has done. And then our praise is to be never-ending, continual, constant. And it will be that when we are content to leave our sins where God has put them. Our praise, shaped by God's love and mercy and compassion and what He has done in removing our sins, our praise is prompted by our reflection on all that, our appropriation of His blessings, His benefits in Jesus. And it goes on forever. And our praise is also, in some ways, conditioned by our ability, by the grace of God, to leave our sin where God has put it. That means that you do not live in a sense of perpetual guilt if you're the kind of person who's confessing your sin to God. That means you do not live in perpetual shame as you confess your sin to God. That means you do not have to suffer for your sins because Jesus did. It means you don't have to atone for your sins because Jesus did. It means you don't have to perform or relive your sin. If God removed our sin as far from us as the east is from west, and if you really believe that, who are we to reach back into the past or to try to reach across the globe in either direction to try to pull that sin back toward us. Why would we do that? If God through his son has delivered you from your sin by such a great distance, then why would you want to reach out for them, retrieve them, relive them, relish them, or repeat them? When God takes our sin and removes them from us as far as the east is from the west, those sins are on a one-way ticket. One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, writes this. Fly as far as the wing of imagination can bear you. And if you journey through space eastward... You are further from the west at every beat of your wing. If sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. 
If this is the distance of its removal, he goes on and says, there is no shade of fear of its ever being brought back again. Even Satan himself could not achieve such a task. Charles Spurgeon. You see, as you trust in Christ, your past sins need not haunt you. If you forgive, if you've repented of those sins and brought them to him, they are removed. God has removed them so far away from you as could possibly be. He does this out of his immeasurable great love for you and his immeasurably great love for his own son, who he banished from his presence, removed, but then welcomed back satisfied in what he has done for you. And so with the obstacle of your sin removed from between you and God, you are free to respond in deep-souled, whole-hearted, full-throated, intensive, extensive, never-ending praise. Your sins are not under the rug or under the stove. They're gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing demonstration of your gospel and your love for us in Christ and what you've done to our sin. We know there is so much more about this, but as we embrace this today, we ask that you would let it settle in. The reality of it becomes so permanent a part of our way of thinking of our relation to you. That you would make us quick to repent and to seek your forgiveness. Quick to want to live for you and quick to praise you with thanksgiving, with joy for all you've done. Receive our thanks and hear our prayer. We offer it in Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.